The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone knew that he was up to some bullshit. Everybody knew that. You know, even hanging around him, he would like prey on people. Every, he would prey on people that had like vulnerabilities, you know, and like he saw it as like a funny thing. Winston Salem, North Carolina. Famous for their production of big brand cigarettes and home of the first Krispy Kreme donut. A quintessential piece of American pie, smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt. Religion sure as hell runs deep through this village. Honest, hardworking, and God-fearing people. Being that Christianity is such a prominent element to the fabric of this community, those who don't identify with the church can very easily be viewed as outcasts. Tattoos and piercings stick out like sore thumbs here. Some are quick to pass judgment. Of course, most of us know not to assume an individual's character based on appearance alone. In a place where alternative lifestyles are quickly pinned as those of, quote, the lost youth or outliers, a lot of kids are made to feel like they simply do not belong. Not to mention during the recession, it was hard for anyone to find work, leaving many people, young and old, without a sense of purpose. But when one new family moved to town from out of state, an only child named Johnny saw this as his opportunity to take these sorts of young adults under his wing, only he wasn't exactly role model material. He wouldn't be spreading the word of the Lord like his fellow neighbors. Instead, he professed that of the devil. They say not to judge a book by its cover, but maybe sometimes we should, especially in the event that individual in question decides to change their name to Pazuzu. dresses the same, has the same badge, and calls themselves the authority of a land they did not create. They only seized through terrorism, has no permission to enter this land, unless you are a native, since this is their land. Since this is the First Amendment of your fake laws, for we see you are guilty until proven innocent. If you can make laws, so can we. So be it. This was a handwritten message on the front door of 2947 Knob Hill Drive in Clemens, North Carolina, sketched in all capital letters by a man named Pazuzu Algarat. Just below it was a bumper sticker that read, Evil Will Triumph. But before this man legally changed his name to that of the demon in the Exorcist films, he was known as John Alexander Lawson. Before he and his mother Cynthia moved to North Carolina, they lived in San Francisco, where John was born. His mother and father split up early on in life, and due to the cost of living, hoping to obtain a fresh start for her son, they left the Bay Area for Clemens, North Carolina, when John was just two years old. Cynthia did her best raising the boy, yet she became rather absent when John was only five. 
Until he was about nine, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, John would stay with his babysitter, Carmen Dube, who lived nearby. Cynthia would drop him off as early as six o'clock in the morning. She would then spend her days and evenings at bars where she would drink and engage in romantic relationships with various men. She remarried once, but it didn't last long. John was thankful for this as he hated his stepdad, among all other men Cynthia brought into the home when he was young. The babysitter Carmen said she only began to see John playing outside once his stepfather was gone and out of the picture. During their time spent together, Carmen recalls John loving horror films such as Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and one of his favorites, The Exorcist. He even wore a costume cape and fake vampire teeth as he sat in front of her television set watching his favorite horror movies. He was a bit strange, Carmen thought, but she attributed this to his father not being around, as well as his mother deciding to pawn him off on the babysitter, i.e. her, every weekend. Johnny had no role model or structure in his life, and as a result, he began acting out. He would constantly scream at his mother Cynthia, and eventually began hitting her physically. At the tender age of just eight years old, Cynthia made the difficult decision to admit Johnny into a psychiatric hospital. Carmen eventually went to visit him during his stay and viewed his mother's decision as cruel and potentially traumatizing to the child. As a single parent, Cynthia tried to keep it together the best she could. Grade school photos of Johnny can be found of him wearing his baseball and football uniforms. His mother figured sports would be a good way to keep him out of trouble, but that didn't seem to work very well. By the age of 13, Johnny began drinking heavily, eventually graduating to nearly a 12-pack of beer every day. By ninth grade, John decided he was all done with school and eventually dropped out. It wasn't long before their residence on Knob Hill Drive became known as the Party House. The quaint one-story home with an in-ground pool soon turned into a vile cesspool filled with garbage. Cynthia had seemingly lost all control over her son by this point. She eventually let him do whatever he wanted. John wasn't working. He grew dreadlocks and eventually began throwing raging house parties while his mother ignored any and everything he was doing. He would shower literally once a year, claiming the germs helped build up his immune system. All of the other neighborhood children who at one point or another felt ostracized seemed to flock to the house. There were no rules. You could take a baseball bat to a TV or mirror and face no repercussions. You could smoke cigarettes inside or even shoot heroin in the kitchen if you so desired. Spray-painted graffiti and pentagrams covered every square inch of the home. Beer cans, trash, and debris were stacked in every room hallway to the ceiling the point of barely being able to walk through. People would urinate in the litter box and drunkenly defecate in the corner of the living room. There were also seven or eight dogs and said to be upward of 15 cats living in the home at one point. Some of the cats died due to poor conditions and were left buried underneath the vast amounts of litter, waste, and trash. The environment was putrid, virtually uninhabitable, and yet John and his mother Cynthia lived there with no complaints for years. Those who visited the home say it smelled like death, and they weren't far off. If you are reading this, and this warning is for you, 
Every word you read of this useless fine print is another second off your life. Don't you have other things to do? Is your life so empty that you honestly can't think of a better way to spend these moments? Or are you so impressed with authority that you give respect and credence to all who claim it? Do you read everything you're supposed to read? Do you think everything you're supposed to think? Buy what you're told you should want. Get out of your apartment. Meet the opposite sex. Stop excessive shopping and masturbation. Quit your job. Start a fight. Prove you're alive. If you don't claim your humanity, you will become a statistic. You have been warned. This message was written on the outside of one of the bedroom doors by John. The home soon became infamous among the quiet and well-maintained suburban neighborhood. People would say, that's where the boogeyman lives. And by 2001, things were more out of control than ever. But then on Tuesday morning of September 11th, much bigger chaos was at hand as our entire nation was suddenly under siege. that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed. The United States had just endured the worst terrorist attack of its kind in modern history. This was a time of great devastation, grief, and mourning in America. But John celebrated. He cheered at the planes crashing into the Twin Towers and soon began championing terrorist organizations such as Al-Qaeda. He even began writing in Arabic and started wearing a hijab. The idea of fear is what drove John the most, but he wasn't John for long. 2002 is when he legally changed his name to Pazuzu Algarat, honoring the ancient Mesopotamian Dark Lord for the purpose of better suiting his demonic persona. And for whatever reason, kids from troubled backgrounds gravitated toward Pazuzu. He became somewhat of a local cult leader of sorts. He had several girlfriends, dubbing them as his, quote, fiancés, all of whom were much younger than he was. They would also have meth-fueled orgies, cut each other, drink the blood, and sacrifice small animals in the backyard. Pazuzu also had several do-it-yourself face tattoos, and on one occasion, he decided to take a Dremel tool to his own teeth, sharpening them down to points. All the while, Cynthia quietly remained in her bedroom, rarely making an appearance in the home outside of coming and going to work. There was this one guy that was um, doing math and got John into doing that, and I don't know if I just turned a blind eye. While Pazuzu was doing a lot of bizarre and questionable things inside of Cynthia's home, a lot of his quote-unquote friends believed it was all part of an act, a gimmick of sorts. Sure, he was doing hard drugs and getting drunk every single day, but everyone thought most of his behavior was just a front to appear like some sort of crust-punk badass. 
one of his buddies, Matt Flowers at the time, alleged that Pazuzu styled himself after the character Drexel in the Quentin Tarantino film True Romance. If you've seen the movie, it makes sense, as there's a pretty uncanny resemblance. Matt was in the army at the time and wanted to get away from all of the drugs and partying. He didn't want to wander down the dark path that his friends were already on. Pazuzu would always ask Matt if he'd killed anyone while serving in Iraq. It seemed the only thing he was interested in whenever they spoke on the phone. And just like everyone else, Matt brushed this behavior off. Pazuzu was the kind of guy who just wanted to freak people out and thought it was edgy to talk about dark topics such as murder. He wanted people to be afraid of him, and he used this type of behavior as a form of control and power over people. Apparently, a lot of young, impressionable, drug-addicted kids that came to the house were enamored by Pazuzu. But as time went on, things only got stranger. While partying at the house, Pazuzu started bragging about how he'd killed someone before. Not one, but several individuals. He would drunkenly spew his alleged achievements of killing prostitutes and homeless people just for kicks. But again, no one believed him. He was always trying to show off about something, trying to get a rise out of people. Pazuzu even went as far as telling whoever came to his house that he had a man tied up and bound in the basement. He would go around commanding people not to go down there, explaining that if they saw someone trying to come up the stairs, not to let them escape. Everyone rolled their eyes at the outlandish prospect. That is, until October of 2009 came around. Just before midnight late one evening, Dixie Ross, party-goer and one of Pazuzu's many fiancés, received a phone call from head fiancé Amber Birch. Amber tells Dixie to come over to the house immediately. She said she needed her help with something but wouldn't say what exactly. Dixie, who'd only lived a few houses down, showed up just a few moments after. When she knocked on the door, Amber greeted her holding a knife while smiling sporting the same shaved eyebrows and manic expression as Pazuzu. She allegedly told Dixie that she had, quote, just done her first. Amber continued by confessing that she had just killed a man and that Dixie was going to help her get rid of the body or else she was going to kill her too. Dixie walked in the residence to see a man slumped over on the couch with a gunshot wound to his head. She was in a state of shock, not knowing what she had just walked into. Just then, Pazuzu's mother came out of the bedroom after hearing the commotion. Amber screamed at Cynthia and demanded she go back into her room, to which she complied. Amber had shot and killed Tommy Dean Welch with a 22 caliber rifle, a man who was known to frequent the home. He had been shot several times, and Amber and Dixie Ross then proceeded to head to the backyard, where they would begin digging a hole to bury his body. Dixie was in fear for her own life, yet eventually mustered up the courage to complain to Amber about her sandals, which kept falling off each time she tried to step on the shovel to dig the shallow grave into the earth. Like the good friend that she was, Amber nonchalantly proceeded to take her own shoes off. She then gave them to Dixie, went back inside the house, and then took the boots off of the already cold body of Tommy Dean Welch. Amber returned soon after, wearing the victim's boots, and began singing aloud something to the effect of, I'm wearing a dead man's shoes, I'm wearing a dead man's shoes. 
the two continued digging, eventually dragging the victim's body there to the backyard. They tried to crudely stuff Tommy Welch into the shallow grave, but they hadn't yet dug it deep enough. So they pulled the body out, continued digging, and tried again once more. Even after placing the body in the hole for a second time, the victim's kneecap was still visible above the dirt. The girls eventually gave up and decided to put a blue tarp over the body. Dixie allegedly took a photo of the blue tarp covering Tommy Welch with her phone. After realizing she had inadvertently become involved in a murder and was now an accessory of hiding a body, Dixie called the only person she knew she could trust, close friend Matt Flowers. Matt and Dixie had dated back in high school and remained very close friends over the years. Matt was stationed at Fort Lewis at the time, just 45 minutes south of Seattle. He had just finished a deployment in Iraq and it hadn't been long since he'd returned home to the States. When Dixie called Matt, she said something to the effect of, I'm part of the family now. Matt wasn't exactly sure what she meant, but from seeing recent photos of the two hanging out together on MySpace and just knowing Pazuzu in general, this comment was concerning enough. Perhaps it was some sort of sick Charles Manson reference. At the very least, Matt knew something was terribly wrong. He hung up the phone, purchased Dixie a plane ticket, and flew her out to meet him a couple of days later. As soon as she got into the car and the two left the airport, she told Matt everything, including the fact that Pazuzu had raped her. Matt was still in love with Dixie during this period. He'd never really gotten over her, so he felt particularly inclined to do everything he could to protect her, so he insisted she stay with him in Seattle. Soon after, Matt dropped an anonymous tip to the homicide unit online. When I was in Fort Lewis, I anonymously dropped it. About a week went by, and I got onto the homicide, Winston-Salem Homicide Unit website, and I put a drop in. And I left Dixie's name out of it. I went into detail, even like exactly where she said that Tommy was buried. He relayed everything that Dixie had told him, aside from her involvement. While he never left his contact information, Matt did tell police in great detail of the murder along with just who Pazuzu and Amber were, and even the exact address and proximity of where the body could be found in the yard. But nothing ever came from it. By all accounts, this particular tip was never followed up on by police. Meanwhile, things went on like normal, business as usual, if you will, over on Knob Hill Drive. Black metal music blaring, liquor bottles smashed, and pissing on the carpet. The only thing that had changed was that the rumors about killing people were no longer rumors, as a body now lay in the backyard. Winter would soon hit, and the ground began to harden. Amber Birch and Pazuzu never refrained from gloating about the killing to their peers. They told everyone, whether the individuals at these parties knew the extent of what had truly gone on is certainly questionable, given Pazuzu's known propensity to spin a tale. It turns out that Matt Flowers wasn't the only one who had gone to the police by this point. Several reports had actually already been filed, including more anonymous tips made to crime watchers that a man on Knob Hill Drive claimed to have a body buried in his backyard. Police allegedly showed up at Pazuzu's home one afternoon and told him they'd heard the rumors, though it's unclear why authorities would risk blowing an entire investigation like this 
divulging information to a potential suspect about an alleged murder without a warrant ready, but they were ultimately sent away. Pazuzu refused to let police come into the home. He was now aware they were onto him, but this didn't seem to affect his behavior much as the parties continued. Finally, three months later, a search warrant was obtained by the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department on February 23, 2010. Soon after, a SWAT team ascended upon the front porch with firearms drawn, quickly gaining access to the residence. Bloodhounds canvassed the backyard, but never once picked up the scent indicating the presence of human remains. They searched the entire property top to bottom, but found nothing. After the raid, Matt received a call from Pazuzu. He began threatening him over the telephone, stating that he was going to kill Dixie next. Finally, he calls me from mad as fuck. Yo, Dixie's a fucking snitch. You'll kill that fucking bitch. He's like, oh, you need, you need to get her out of your life. She's going to ruin your life. And he would call her Ditsy. You know, it's like a, he's a bully. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, Ditsy, like, you know, get away from her. She's a snitch, you know, fucking... He's like, um, SWAT team came to my house and looked for everything, but they didn't find shit. Matt was eventually able to calm Pazuzu down, and as time passed, their friendship resumed as normal. Or at least that's what Pazuzu thought. More than likely feeling he was getting too close to this situation, Matt Flowers then decided to re-enlist in the army and soon moved to Germany for the sole purpose of getting him and Dixie as far away from North Carolina as humanly possible. Matt was now a combat veteran, and he'd completed over 250 missions. He'd also just come off a 15-month deployment in Iraq. Re-enlisting wasn't exactly in his original deck of cards, but he was under the impression police weren't doing much to solve the case, and in fear for their own safety, Matt and Dixie eventually got married and moved overseas. Roughly eight months after the raid, while Matt and Dixie were living in Germany, they got word that Pazuzu had been involved in yet another murder. One night at a gas station, a man named Nicholas Rizzi and Pazuzu somehow convinced a legally blind man named Joseph Chandler to get into their vehicle. Neither one of them knew the man, but the three drove down to the Yadkin River, and at some point while Pazuzu and Chandler were by the water, Rizzi allegedly pulled a shotgun from the car. He then walked to the water and tried to fire the weapon, but the gun allegedly jammed. Rizzi then walked back to the vehicle to retrieve a different firearm, which was ultimately the gun that took Chandler's life. Joseph Chandler was shot in the back of the head. Pazuzu and Rizzi fled the scene and Chandler was later found there by the river's edge. Once captured, they claimed the shooting was a terrible accident and that Chandler had died while the three were, quote, taking target practice though it had been widely speculated that this was, in fact, a sacrifice killing, as it was a full moon on the night of the murder. In October of 2010, Pazuzu Algarad and Nicholas Rizzi were arrested and charged with the shooting death of victim Joseph Chandler. He was just 30 years old. In March of 2011, Rizzi pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, 
and was eventually sentenced to 13 months in prison. Pazuzu Algarad was charged with accessory after the fact to involuntary manslaughter and ultimately accepted a plea deal. He was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation before his hearing. What does that mean? That's Pazuzu was ultimately diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder and agoraphobia, an anxiety disorder relating to feeling trapped and wanting to avoid crowded areas. Strangely enough, Pazuzu seemed to have no issues with the wall-to-wall parties he'd thrown in his mother's home almost nightly. However, he rarely left the residence. You have to report to me, bro. I'm on Are you pleading guilty to accessory after the fact to involuntary manslaughter? The state's going to dismiss another felony for obstructing justice. Is that correct? Yes. For his involvement in the crime, Pazuzu would serve less than a year in prison of his suspended sentence. He was subsequently given five years of probation for his role in the death of Joseph Chandler, essentially walking away a free man from a murder with only a slap on the wrist. Things eventually calmed down for a bit during this period, and Pazuzu would go on to tell people that he was never going back to jail. However, there were several domestic abuse incidents at the hands of Amber Birch toward Cynthia James. And on November 7, 2011, Amber was charged with domestic assault after trying to choke Pazuzu's mother. While she was being held in detention, Cynthia went down to the sheriff's department to report a murder. Surprisingly, Cynthia told authorities everything she knew. She informed them that she had witnessed the murder of Tommy Dean Welch in her home and that Amber was the culprit, pinning the blame squarely on her. Police told Cynthia that they needed more information, and they asked if she would give them permission to search the residence. But she declined, perhaps because she was afraid her house would be condemned considering the deplorable and unsanitary conditions inside. Or perhaps she was scared they'd find something else. Without consent to search, Police were left once again with their hands tied, and no further action was taken. Meanwhile, Matt and Dixie ended up living in Germany for about two years, but Dixie had developed some serious issues of her own. She was suffering from addiction and the residual trauma of Pazuzu raping her, and presumably carrying the horrific memory of hiding Tommy Dean Welch's body. She eventually became suicidal and began cutting herself on one occasion so badly that she almost took her own life. Matt was eventually granted what's known as a compassionate reassignment due to the circumstances, which allowed the couple to leave Germany and return home. Matt was then stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where his relationship with Dixie unfortunately eventually dissolved. They sent me to Fort Bragg, made me a Red Beret, put me in 82nd Airborne, and I would still keep track of him because I figured the cops weren't going to do anything. So while I was stationed in Fort Bragg every weekend, I would come into town and I would go hang out with him. For all intents and purposes, Matt kept coming around, 
if only to keep a close eye on Pazuzu. It had been almost five years, and police still hadn't arrested anyone on a murder charge. Matt started calling him more often and visiting him to keep in good graces, knowing very well there were human bones in his backyard. The same bones that detectives and bloodhounds quite literally stepped over years prior. These visits from Matt became more like recon missions. He gained as much information as he could about the murder that took place in the home, while also making sure that no one else was brought harm in the process. One night while sitting at a fire, Pazuzu told Matt that he knew he tried to turn him in, but that he was his brother and that he forgave him. Pazuzu then took a fire poker, stuck it into the flames, and pulled out flesh of what was believed to be from a dead animal. He then proceeded to take a bite of the meat and told Matt something to the effect of, I can never be caught. Satan protects me. On a separate occasion, when Matt was at one of the house parties, Pazuzu started cursing at and disrespecting his mother in the home. A tall, stocky man at the party didn't take too kindly to this disrespect and reprimanded Pazuzu for treating his mother in such a manner. Pazuzu wasn't happy that a stranger had just confronted and challenged him in his own home. Pazuzu then took Matt Flowers aside and into the kitchen, saying something along the lines of, Let's kill this fucking guy. Come on, we'll get away with it. The dishwasher in the home didn't work, but it didn't need to as it was where Pazuzu stored his guns and knives. There were plenty of weapons inside of that home to kill someone in the event he so chose. Furious by the proposition, Matt grabbed Pazuzu by the hair and slammed his head into a kitchen cabinet, quickly letting him know that he wouldn't be murdering anyone that evening. Matt then told the man whose life was unknowingly in danger to take a ride with him to get booze, as the party was running low. As soon as the two men got into the car, Matt told him that Pazuzu wanted him dead and that he was doing him a favor. The pair then went to a nearby Red Lobster where Matt paid for dinner and told the man to never go back to the house or he'd likely be killed. The pair then parted ways and never saw each other again. Flowers was beside himself. He felt as though he was now running out of options. He knew there was a dead man in the backyard and clearly, Pazuzu had no reservations about killing again. He asked the advice of some former veteran friends on what to do in this situation. One of his army buddies suggested that if the police weren't going to do anything, that he should go down there and handle it himself. He's like, look, dude, he's like, if this guy's really raping people and killing people, just go fucking kill him, and then just become a fucking alcoholic and get over it. Matt got into another confrontation with Pazuzu one night at his house, as he put it, Matt, quote, beat the brakes off him. The fist fight was the last straw. Fed up that the police hadn't done anything to this point and that the guy was allowed to continue doing whatever he so pleased, Matt decided it was finally time to go down to the sheriff's department in person, but he wasn't interested in filling out any paperwork or filing reports this time. He decided instead to go with a bit more of an unorthodox approach. I gave them kind of an ultimatum. It's just like, look, here's my, here's my credentials. Here's my address. Here's my social security number. Here, I, was, I was in the military. And uh, here's, I gave them the diagram of where, where I thought the Tommy was. And I was like, look, you guys got one week. 
And if you don't do anything in seven days, I'm going in with a shotgun. I'm going to kick the fucking door in with a 12 gauge Mossberg and I'm going to fucking shoot him at like 4, 435 o'clock in the morning. I know he's passed out. And I was like, if anyone else gets in my way, they're going to get shot too. I was like, right after I get done doing this, I'll come in and I'll turn myself in. Luckily for Matt's sake, it didn't come down to that. A few days after Matt showed up at the police station, the cops raided the home on Knob Hill Drive once more. But this time, the search was more fruitful. To almost everyone's surprise, however, there wasn't just one body buried in the backyard. The residents, 35-year-old Pazuzu Algerard and 24-year-old Amber Birch, remain locked up this morning, charged with one count of murder and one count of accessory after the fact to murder. Investigators believe the two are responsible for killing and burying two victims in shallow graves behind the home where they live. This entire time, Matt Flowers had no idea there was actually another body buried in the backyard. But when police showed up that day on October 5th, 2014, Amber Birch folded and told them everything. See, back in 2009, Tommy Dean Welch wasn't the first person to be killed inside Pazuzu Algarad's home. Just a few months before Amber murdered Welch with a rifle, Pazuzu had already killed a man named Joshua Wetzler that July with the very same gun. But who was this other man? Josh Wetzler grew up in Virginia. He was a salt-of-the-earth man who loved animals and, in particular, loved horses. When he met his future wife-to-be, Stacy Carter, years down the line, the two fell for each other almost immediately. They shared the same passions and eventually bought a farm in the Winston-Salem area with plans to house horses for rehabilitation. In 2004, their firstborn son, Jared, was brought into the world. They were actively living their dream, but by 2007, the couple fell on hard times during the economic crash. Josh had trouble finding work, and they eventually fell behind on mortgage payments. One year later, they lost the farm due to foreclosure. The struggles put a great strain on the relationship, and on Josh especially. He worried about what to do next and how he would provide for his family. Things seemed to only go downhill from here. Desperate, Josh soon began selling marijuana and mushrooms in order to get by in the interim, finding more stable and consistent work. Stacy frowned upon this decision greatly, and it was a catalyst in their eventual separation. Stacy went on to work at another local farm, while Josh moved into a trailer nearby, still without a job. He continued struggling until one day selling drugs caught up with him. He had illegally received a package of psychedelic mushrooms in the mail, and the police raided his trailer, and he was subsequently arrested and hit with a Class A felony drug charge. Josh was now at an all-time low, and it was at this point in his life where he first met Pazuzu Algarat. It's unclear exactly how the unlikely pair met. Josh, a fun-loving hippie, and Pazuzu, a self-proclaimed Satanist, but it had been reported that Josh began showing up and partying at Pazuzu's home sometime after the arrest. He was hopeless, like just about everyone else who entered that home and found acceptance among the unaccepted. After all, 
no one would hire a registered felon, and so he ended up living on Pazuzu's couch for upwards of an entire month. It was during his stay at the home when an altercation occurred and he was murdered in cold blood. He was shot by Pazuzu with the 22 caliber rifle. Pazuzu's mother Cynthia was also present when the murder took place, just as she had been when Tommy Dean Welch was killed. After hearing several gunshots, she came out of her bedroom to see a man bleeding profusely there on her floor. I went back to my bedroom. I thought, what am I going to do? Okay, okay. Well, gosh, in the state he's in, he might shoot me. Instead of calling 911, Cynthia went back into her bedroom, got ready for work, and left for the day, as if nothing had ever happened. Pazuzu would ultimately wrangle up a group of his loyal followers and threaten their lives if they didn't help him dispose of the body. Crystal Matlock, another one of Pazuzu's so-called fiancés, was a main player in this act, as well as another man named Alan Billings who lived close by. Joshua Wetzler's body was dragged into the basement, where it was left to decompose, though it's unclear if Joshua actually died instantly from his injuries. By many accounts, it unfortunately seems as though he was left to bleed out there in the basement. When the smell eventually got too unbearable, even for Pazuzu, cat litter and bleach were poured over the body. Josh was later dismembered, and Crystal, Alan, Pazuzu, and Amber all helped dig the first hole in the backyard, which is where Joshua's bones would subsequently be revealed five years later, just a few yards away from Tommy Dean Welch's. After all those years of bragging about a body in the basement, it turns out that Pazuzu was likely telling the truth after all. What's certainly most interesting about the murders of Joshua Wetzler and Tommy Dean Welch is the amount of time it took authorities to make an arrest. Although police need to follow a very specific protocol before they can legally do so, it seems as though there was an ample amount of evidence and reports made from the public about two separate individuals, all tips public and anonymous leading to the same backyard that very well could have been treated with a bit more a sense of urgency. Not to mention that one of the first reports of a murder was made by Tarina Billings, accomplice Alan Billings's daughter. In August of 2009, two weeks after Joshua Wetzler was murdered, Tarina made the difficult decision of turning in her own father. She saw him the evening he dug the hole at Pazuzu's house, shirtless and covered with dirt. She followed his car from their home back to Pazuzu's just after the crew had finished digging. He saw his daughter pull up and ran to the road, screaming for her to get away. She listened and drove off. Police ultimately visited Alan Billings' home where he denied any involvement, although he did tell officers that Pazuzu had told him he shot and buried someone in his backyard. Alan Billings was never arrested or brought in for questioning, which brings us to the first time police paid a visit to Pazuzu's home, where they simply asked to come inside, and he said no. While Pazuzu Algarad and Amber Birch sat in jail awaiting their eventual day in court, the Forsyth County Housing Code Enforcement entered the residence, roughly one month after the remains were discovered in the backyard. The available body cam footage gives us a first-hand look at just how vile and repulsive the conditions inside the residence truly were. All right, let's do it. 
Definitely with the park. Oh yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely unfit for human habitat. Jesus Christ. Protecting themselves wearing foot coverings and latex gloves, the housing code officers struggle to maneuver through thigh-high piles of trash that you can almost smell through the computer screen. One man jumps when he sees a terrarium for one of Pazuzu's reptiles, arguably one of the more well-maintained organisms to have actually existed here. Is that thing dead? No, it's alive. Watch your step, there's a lot of broken glass. Okay. Actually, you haven't hit the worst part yet. Mm. Boy, this guy had a, a bad case of whatever he, they got. Fourth step from the bottom is kind of loose. So okay. The housing code officers then make their way downstairs, where Joshua Wetzler was once dragged and would ultimately spend his last moments of life. You can hear in the footage as they navigate through heaps of beer cans and garbage. They soon arrive at the garage door, which leads out to the backyard. There, just outside of the doorway, a shallow grave is visible. To actually view the footage of where and how these two men were laid to rest is unnerving to say the least. Watch the step here. This is, that, this is actually where one was buried. Um, God almighty. In the pool just behind you. So there's one was buried there? One was here, one was up there. Is that stench just coming from the house? Well, that smell? And some of this dirt that we've created here. I mean, it's it's well, well, <laughs> well past uh, condemning. He said it best. This house was simply not fit for any human being to live in. After that determination had ultimately been made, the county set to have the home demolished on April 24, 2015. The decision came as a great relief to the people of Clemens and all of Winston-Salem in North Carolina. While the memories will unfortunately always remain, the physical reminder of two horrific tragedies that occurred behind closed doors would finally be erased from the community. If those walls could talk, they definitely would have said, knock me down, a long time ago. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Woohoo! We're celebrating! This is a party. We are very excited. We're ha we got the picnic spread already ready. We're going to have a picnic today at lunch. How um, do you think this will affect the neighborhood from this um, point on? I think we'll have, well, we'll have less traffic for sure. <laughs> we'll be, we won't have to talk to the news and the paper anymore, Not no offense, but um, our faces will be off camera. Our street will be off camera. We'll get back to our nice, quiet, very wonderful neighborhood. And um, actually, we've been dealing with this for a very long time, much longer than six months, but um, we are all ready for this to be over. You know, I raised teenage boys here, so, um, and all their friends. So I was just very hypervigilant. I always had to know where they were, what they were doing, and they got the huge lecture that they were never to get within any 
distance of the house whatsoever. And, um, and my nephew even sent me a message the day after it happened and said, you told us when we were little to never get close, and I sure am glad we listened. I said, yes, yeah, sometimes Mama knows best. So, um, but we always were friendly to them. They never bothered us. They were nice to us. I mean, it wasn't a personal thing. It was just I knew evil stuff and bad stuff was going on. There was a lot of fighting, a lot of parties, and I worked a lot of late shifts, so there were nights I'd be coming home, and there'd be full-blown fights out in the front yard, and I would just hide out in my car until I felt like it was safe to get in. And so, um, you know, I knew this was coming. I didn't know when it was coming, but I knew it. I knew at some point. I always said one day the house would be wrapped in yellow tape. I, I had no idea who was killing people. I didn't know it was to that level. I just figured a fight gone bad or something like that. Neighbors pulled up a front row seat and literally cheered as the bulldozer drove through the front porch of Cynthia James's and Pazuzu Algarod's home. There's children who walk to the school bus here every day. And um, to know that type of uh, you know, sick behavior was, uh, you know, very immense. It's uh, really disturbing. Keith Bryson, who lived directly across the street, saw the demolition as a much-needed reprieve for the neighborhood. Uh, just hopefully bring the neighborhood some peace and some closure and not have 27 news vans out front and people stopping where you can't get out of your driveway and, uh, you know, get rid of an eyesore all at the same time. But we're also hoping that the people who lost their loved ones here, the guys that died in the house, we're really hoping that they get some closure today and, and some peace out of this more than anything. While locals were relieved at the demolition, there were still so many unanswered questions for the three families that had been destroyed. Had the murder of Joshua Wetzler been properly investigated? Maybe, just maybe, Tommy Dean Welch and Joseph Emmerich Chandler would still be alive today. It makes you wonder if Pazuzu's earlier claims of killing other individuals might have in fact been true. In the case, he had even more victims that simply had never been found. When looking at this man's character and backstory, it is certainly not out of the realm of possibility. On October 28, 2015, Pazuzu wrote this letter to his mother from behind bars while awaiting his eventual day in court. Mom, I'm so bored. I got a letter from you and Amber. I despise the human race. People are ugly and pointless creatures. I sit back and watch them and they anger me. I should get a medal for murdering these stupid motherfuckers. Maybe when I'm dead, the gods of chaos shall grant me the power. So, how's things your way? When are you coming to see me again? Well, I'm hungry and tired, so I'll write you again here soon. I love you. Cynthia James laughed aloud as she read this letter to local TV reporters in a piece they had done for the story back in 2019. Just two days after writing this letter, Pazuzu Algarod committed suicide in the central prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, where he was being housed. Though there is still much speculation surrounding just how he killed himself when he had allegedly been removed for his own safety and was under close watch, the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department has refused to address the matter publicly. Mr. Algarod was discovered shortly uh, after 3 a.m. He was unresponsive and had a wound to one of his arms. Mr. Averrod was sent to the adult corrections central prison on a safekeeping order. That order has subsequently been sealed, so we cannot 
discuss any of the specifics contained within that order. Are there any questions? The portion of Pazuzu Algarod's death investigation, namely the autopsy report, was inevitably released, revealing that he suffered a, quote, incised wound on the upper part of his left arm at the pit of his elbow. It also revealed that he had a, quote, perforation of the left brachial artery, a major blood vessel. Though the origin of his fatal self-inflicted injuries have never publicly been revealed, many have speculated that he used his own filed-down sharp teeth to chew deeply into his own arm. Though Pazuzu Algarad had once again evaded prosecution for his crimes, those who idly stood by and assisted him would not. A third person is in jail after human remains were found in a Clemens backyard. The Winston-Salem Journal reports Crystal Matlock is charged with accessory after the fact. She's accused of helping bury an unknown man in a shallow grave. Crystal Matlock, one of Pazuzu's countless fiancés who helped bury Joshua Wetzler, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit accessory after the fact to second-degree murder. She was sentenced to a minimum of three years and ten months in prison. She had this to say to the victim's family, although no one in the courtroom seemed to have any interest in this generic apology. I just want to say that I'm sorry that I didn't come forward. I should have, but I didn't. I was scared. I just wanted to say that I'm sorry for your loss. On March 9, 2017, 27-year-old Amber Birch agreed to a plea deal for her role in the murders. She pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was ultimately sentenced to a maximum of 39 years in prison with credit for time served. Dixie Ross, the woman who helped Amber bury Tommy Dean Welch's body, was never charged with a crime, and Alan Billings passed away before he could ever be charged with a crime in regards to Joshua Wetzler's death. As for Pazuzu Algarad's mother, Cynthia, well, somehow she was never charged with a crime either. Cynthia James enabled Pazuzu to the point of literally allowing her son to get away with murder, not once but twice in her own home over the course of more than five years. In an interview conducted by a local media outlet, Cynthia seemed to be as detached from reality as any one human being possibly could be in her situation. And we had so much fun. I mean, he always made me laugh. He was wanting to hang out with people that I didn't want him to hang out with. I didn't think that I loved him too much. And then, you know, I said, okay, whatever you want to do. In nearly every interview found with Cynthia James, she seems to deflect the horrific things her son has done, choosing instead to focus on the good memories she has with him. She speaks often and mainly of his childhood and she's gone on record to state that she wasn't upset about the carloads of people who would waywardly stumble their way into her home because she was, quote, happy that John had friends. Certainly there is an unconditional love that most parents have for their children. However, the nonchalant nature in which she discusses and almost dismisses these crimes is astonishing to say the least. Perhaps it's easier to deal with the underlying trauma her son may or may not have caused her, so she simply decides not to. After all, out of sight, out of mind seems to have been the mindset Cynthia James has always deployed when it came to her son, Pazuzu. 
the Vice Network would go on to create a documentary on this case. While thorough and extremely well-produced, Matt Flowers, the man arguably responsible for eventually taking down his ex-friend Pazuzu Algarot, was not entirely satisfied with how the film was created. In a recent interview with Monstercade TV on YouTube, he criticized how it was put together, expressing that he disliked how the film portrayed the two as better friends than they actually were. It seems clear through his recent interview that Matt hung out with Pazuzu as an impressionable youth. However, later on, he was mainly keeping an eye on Pazuzu when he felt police weren't doing anything to stop him. Oh, well, back up to the documentary, though, with like Pazuzu, right? I've had strangers I've never met before. They've never met me before. They, they base who I am off of some bullshit documentary, you know, and Vice. They clip and edit things to have their own narrative. You know what I mean? Because a lot of that documentary is like kind of disjointed. It's yeah. disjointed. It doesn't yes. make any sense, you know? Flowers goes on to speak about how this entire case has affected his life after the fact, particularly due to the documentary. He speaks here about Pazuzu supporters who often message him online with threats. I've had, I've had strangers contact me personally and call me a snitch and say, like, they're going to come at me. But, you know, and then I'll look into these public profiles, you know, whatever you put online is public, you know, and I'll look into these people. I'm like, oh, these are fucking scumbags. You know what I mean? They don't know shit about like a code. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I've, you know, been in the military and I've been in, with groups of people where it's like we look out for each other. And, you know, he had no code. He didn't he wasn't looking out for anyone at all. He's living off his mom, you know, God, I don't even think this guy worked a day in his life. I mean, the only reason why I went after him is because he raped a girl that I was in love with at one point, and he raped a soldier that just got out of basic training. See, that stuff was not in the dog. No, not at all. According to Matt, it wasn't just Dixie Ross who had been raped by Pazuzu Algarot. He goes on to tell the story of a soldier who had also been a victim of this form of manipulation and sexual abuse for an extended period of time. It's like this guy's raping people and murdering people. You know, I I knew for a fact he raped at least three people. And I mean, I'm talking three guys held this soldier down and he raped this guy. You know, and then later down the road, the guy came back and like Pazuzu had sex with him. Like they they, they would just have sex after that because he like he just fucked the guy up. You know what I mean? These are only some of the stories people like Matt Flowers have witnessed firsthand inside of the dilapidated home at 2749 Knob Hill Drive. There's no telling what other treacherous things may have taken place at the hands of Pazuzu Algarot inside, things that haven't even reached the surface yet. For now, Clemens, North Carolina has their community back, and any other potential crimes committed by John Alexander Lawson also known as Pazuzu Algarot, have seemingly gone to the grave with him. Now that he is gone, the people of Winston-Salem may very well choose to take a page out of Cynthia's book, just this once, to intentionally turn a blind eye and forget the entire thing ever happened, apart from continuing to honor his victims. And if the memory of what occurred here ever does come back to haunt those local residents, perhaps... Like Cynthia James, they can simply go back to their bedroom, get ready for work, and walk off the front porch out into the world, out of sight, out of mind. Though I wouldn't count on it, because not everyone is capable of such narcissistic indifference to human life.